0: Welcome back to Creative Responders and our first in-conversation podcast for 2021. I hope you've all had an opportunity to listen to season two of our documentary series over the summer. We've loved hearing your feedback on it. It's great to know that these stories are having an impact on the way that you think about and approach creative recovery. From the Arbor Festival in the Snowy Valleys to bushfire recovery in the Gippsland region, First Nations artists and storytellers in North Queensland, and the incredible teams of Wooloolahara Creative and Community Arts Networking WA. It's been a real privilege for us to share these stories with you. We are back now for our monthly conversation series, where each month we feature a conversation with one guest, bringing perspectives from a range of people working in the arts and emergency management space. Kicking off for our first episode for the year, I'm speaking with Dr Caroline Alcorso who is currently directing the Natural Disaster Mental Health and Wellbeing Framework. The development of this framework is funded by the Australian Government through the National Mental Health Commission in a bid to address the increasing complex mental health needs of individuals and communities affected by natural disasters. The aim of the framework is to improve cross-government responses to mental health threats before, during and after natural disasters and it will be released in June this year. Many of us are working on the front lines in communities at a local level and many of the stories we share on the podcast are about this grassroots community response and the one-on-one interactions around disaster preparedness and recovery. We wanted to take a moment to pull back and look at the bigger picture to see what is happening nationally around mental health and well-being in relationship to disasters how is the response to our new reality of cascading impacts being approached at a national level and how does that approach incorporate the presence of the arts we know that the arts are a crucial component in strengthening social ties and building community resilience essential ingredients for mental health and well-being So as we plan into the future of increasingly layered impacts of disaster, is there a shift occurring in terms of leaders and thinkers investing in alternative modes of engagement? Caroline is based in Sydney, and join me over the phone to dive into some of these questions. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Caroline Alcorso. Welcome, Caroline. I'm um, calling in. From Yagara tourable country here in Meijin, Brisbane. Uh, it's a pretty uh, misty, rainy day here today, so it's very delicious. Mm. Where, where are you come, calling from?
1: I'm on Aora country, um, the, the Aora land of the, Gadig, the Gadigal people in Sydney, and it's very hot, hot, clear, sunny. Yeah, but we have had lots of beautiful rain.
0: Yeah, it's so. Um, it's so so much of this watching the parched land, drink it in here, but everything is very green, so it's encouraging for at least the rest of the year and a mm. bit of a rest in the fire season. So, Caroline, before we talk uh, much about your role with the natural disaster recovery framework and response, um, can we ask a little about you and who who you are and what your work has been and, and what's kind of led you to this? Point in your life in your mm. well
1: you know my life isn't uh, I suppose I'm not one of those people who has a very clear and planned career trajectory oh. <laughs> so oh. I just I do end up doing lots of different things um, I am from Tasmania And uh, I guess my first memory of of disasters, and again it was fires, was the 1967 Tasmanian bushfires where um, we we were driving through flames on the major highway um, from north to south and there were many, many people I knew, you know, who had to evacuate and who came to school wearing clothes that people had given them and so on um, and that... And it and also that it irrevocably changed a lot of the landscape near where I live, turning it from what had been rainforest into um, sort of dry sort of semi sclerophyll forest after that all cleared all altogether um, But I have worked a lot in community development i 've worked for government in policy and strategy. Um, and I've my main focus and theme throughout my work has actually been workforce and workforce issues, the world of work. But um, I've also had a sort of secondary, I suppose, specialisation in health, um, and I developed something called the National Non English Speaking Background Women's Health Strategy back way, way back in the 90s, uh, and I've worked on other sort of major health initiatives since then. Um, and, and ended up here, I was doing some work actually on health workforce with the Commonwealth Department of Health um, a couple of years ago and sort of this, that move transformed into this project with the National Mental Health Commission. So, which doesn't, it does have a strong workforce focus because the professionalisation of the recovery workforce is an issue certainly. Uh, for the framework, but of course it's much broader. Mm,
0: can you tell us a little bit about what that, what the job is that you're doing with the framework?
1: Yeah. Um. So at the time of the Black Summer fires, um, as is often the case, you know, a lot of different organisations and governments kind of scramble to um, offer assistance, and the federal government has been playing a larger role in disasters um, for some time uh, and obviously we are having more disasters and they're becoming more intense. Um, so the, the Department of Health, well, there was there was a, a, a cross government, across the Commonwealth government, there was a national bushfire strategy and package, funding package immediately in response in January <clears throat> 2020. And that involved funding for this framework. So it involved a lot of other things, obviously for local economic recovery and for health services and mental health services in particular. Um but but it 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 also there was also recognition right right at that early stage by Minister Hunt that coordination and uh, consistency and having some common language and framework for recovery um, is a key issue. You know, even before things had kind of cranked up and started started being rolled out, um, it, it's an issue that's come up, of course, many mm. times before in other disasters. So there was money allocated at that time for this national disaster mental health framework. And the Commission was asked to to develop that document and it had a year to do it, so um, from June to June this year, which is when the framework is being delivered to
0: government. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that notion of communication and how it becomes... The um, binding, but also the, the the fragility of systems that we work in, and how um, mm. we always struggle to try and find a way of greater transparency or greater ways of how we communicate across a common language. But you know, even just the word recovery is so broadly used. Mm. Um, you know, how do we how do we um, you know how do we frame ways of being able to have a collective language that everyone is. Going to be able to agree on.
1: That's right, and we we've actually made the decision in the framework not to use the word recovery um, very often. Like, it, obviously, you know, it's, it's you can use lots of different words at different times, but um, we've kind of tended to just go with a very simple periodization um, of for for mental, the mental health framework, mm. which is really just before, during. And after and ongoing, um, those as the phases, because recovery means so many different things. We don't at all want to give the impression that it's some endpoint or goal that everyone will be aiming for and reach at a certain point, because that isn't consistent with people's experiences. So we're just using that sort of before, after. Uh, before, during, and after, and and then um, some stakeholders we've been working with have suggested after and ongoing makes more sense to mm. them because they don't yeah after because there's again, no has line in the sand is there <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah both yeah.
0: Uh, individually and collectively it's very hard to define that so so your um the the scope. Of this framework, obviously, is involving involving a whole raft of individuals and stakeholders, as emergency management does. It's such a mixed collection of different um, and diverse sectors of our community. What, um, how did you approach um, that process of consulting and bringing in those multiple pl- partners into this development? Um, look we we really just
1: used we were lucky uh, I I would say in the first place that there were many uh, inquiries and of course the Royal Commission international natural disaster arrangements under being um, taking place during 19 2020 so we used and read a lot of the submissions that organizations had made um, to the those commissions and Uh, and inquiries and a lot of very useful material came out of those documents so we didn't have to kind of completely um, rely on our own new consultations but we have consulted with about well I don't know something like 115 um, organizations and we also one of the things we noticed very early on was that there Seem to be this real disconnect, which which government a lot of government um, staff spoke about, just between what governments feel like they're doing, which is rolling out a lot of new services, new new money, new new assistance, um, and what people seem to be experiencing on the ground, which was often nothing's happening, we're not getting help, you know, things are chaotic, etc. So. We, we thought we'd just, um, <clears throat> with the limited funds we had available, we'd just engage community researchers in, in a few places for sites, as it turned out, in Queensland and in New South Wales, um, to collect some stories, some really detailed personal stories from people about their experiences following a disaster. Um, so in, in the case of Queensland, it was the monsoon flooding. So it was um, earlier on; it was a year, and a, you know, a couple of years ago now. Um, and and also, all of these uh, recent disasters are often accompanied by other disasters.
0: So you know, just drought
1: mm. as well in Queensland and in New South Wales to some extent. Well, it's that's, that's uh, and then COVID. a very
0: <laughs> big part of what we're looking at, isn't it? This cascading impact, which yeah. we ha- we haven't really yeah. been shown to be very prepared for the, the, the multiple layers of what that means for people. No,
1: very, very complex mm. and challenging, I would mm. say. Um, so that, that has proved very useful because we did that quickly. So it was a bit of a sort of quick and dirty job of, you know, just like interviewing people and, and really trying to analyze. We asked the University of Melbourne to then uh, help us analyze that research. And, it, it it did prove incredibly interesting because it, and it's not the first mental health, disaster mental health research to do this, but it did, it has shone the light very clearly on the aftermath issues, you know. So there's the mental health impacts of the disaster itself, but then there's the aftermath and everything that happens after the disaster and how that can itself be Um, traumatising, upsetting, anxiety producing, very frustrating, almost as bad as, you know, the initial disaster.
0: Yeah, and we know that any underlying issues that were prevalent previously will be exacerbated again in these kind of vulnerable spaces. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But we also heard from people who, you know, who really just focused in on the the help-seeking process and how difficult that was and how you know, they would end up going to, you know, 17, 20 different places or calling and not really knowing, you know, they weren't themselves looking for a particular service. They were just looking for help. And it was difficult, you know, a lot of people get given long lists of services or websites. And, of course, many people are not able to access websites easily following uh, disasters, or in rural areas, you know, as a whole, um, and and yeah, just how you know the whole process of trying to fill in forms, and then it being very dispiriting to find that how difficult it was, and then not having the right documents, and then suddenly the eligibility period had expired, and mm. you know all that kind of stuff that had a really sort of profound um, cum- cumulative impact on people and made them feel you know, stupid or really dispirited or just alienated or angry,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Left, left behind. I mean, you, yeah. are in this work, you know, there's a lot of talk about the challenges in this space but also, you know, the term post-traumatic growth has been, been used much more now around this idea of positive outcomes too for people and people's lives. Did they, Did you sort of touch in that as well with your research or
1: no not not much of that came out but of course it was just a you Mm. know it's just a small group of people in each place that um and very much a self-selected sample um but yeah obviously i'm sure that you know there are many people who who make the fresh start i know you know most most disaster Locations, people, uh, a proportion of the population has moved away. And then there's also the, the possibility of new social strong connections starting in places that have experienced disasters and I think we've seen quite a lot of that in the Victorian mm. case. It would be great
0: to think um, that a framework would be there to um, support and grow, grow that more effectually into the future.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, the framework will be, you know, it won't, I mean, it won't be like a a sort of manual. Um, There are, firstly, there are quite a lot of those already. Too many, (laughs) Um, maybe. (laughs) And secondly, you know, it can't be that because, um, uh, you know, disasters are, I mean, the the response to disasters is very varied across Australia and it is primarily in the hands of the states, the state governments. So, uh, you know, it's not really going to be possible for us to say to every state, you need to do this or, you know, exactly follow these steps. It won't be that kind of thing. It'll be more um, (laughs) principles, principles. Uh, what to watch for, what not to do, simple kind of guidelines, um, but then for to be that then need to be worked through at a state level.
0: Mm. And um, if we're looking at this kind of increasing layers of disasters that you mentioned earlier, and the idea of so many multiple partners coming into support communities in this space, what where do you see a framework like this opening up opportunities for more um, diverse ways of engaging around psychosocial like, well being or, or community connection, which I'm assuming is a kind of main basis around a mental health and well being framework or objective?
1: Mm.
0: Well, I think I mean I think the
1: the Bushfire recovery package from twenty twenty I mean, it, it was already a good start in that respect. It, a lot of money from that package went into and from the subsequent packages went into community mental health and wellbeing grants or support at the grassroots kind of level rather than medical services. There was also a lot of money put into medical services and uh, free Medicare sessions and so on. And quite a lot of that has not been taken up um, and that's in part, you know, that's a question of yet because, you know, these it's it certainly, um, it, it, everyone's now very aware that it's a long period in which such services may be called on. But what was received very well was local um Community funding for different activities, and for and some primary health networks, you know, have already shown very innovative ways of rolling that money out, of engaging large, you know, communities or different small communities in different parts of their region in co-design processes, and doing that very well. So I think there's already a lot of developing practice in the area, Um, and as I said, a recognition that it's. It's community capital, community connections, and
0: helping communities rebuild. That is um, really important. Well, it is that co-collaboration, isn't it? That if you're if you're engaging mm. people around things where there's a kind of willingness to attend or participate because it's a safe entry point, that then to connect that in with the mental health service or so, or, or workers that can build a relationship towards more more uh, individualized. Um, support then that is always such a win-win isn't
1: it yeah but it's always bearing in mind that it's really only ever going to be a small percentage probably that need uh, more specialized services that for the vast majority it's more about generalized kind of um, just you know psychological first aid support for for children perhaps you know different particular groups are, are more vulnerable mm. and might need more more um, kind of wellbeing style services and support. But um, I think the biggest uh, threat is probably just how funding, so much funding is short term, you know. So I think you get a lot of people, I mean, in some regions in New South Wales there are, you know, five or even seven in some kind of recovery coordinator people, so people in a region who are doing some kind of community development, liaison, engagement, network building, but so many of them, you know <laughs> and then then many of them, their funding will will cease, and the people who've developed those really valuable skills and networks won't continue. Mm. And the next lot of people will start again. Next time as a disaster, mm. you know. So, I think, and I think, of course, we have now um, a new federal government agency being stood up, which is the National uh, Resilience Recovery and Relief Agency. So that is certainly promises to be a more, to provide a more kind of constant um, and ongoing set of services so that's a really good yeah idea.
0: so that's endless issue of of uh, knowledge being lost in the cycle of it all yeah, yes very frustrating yeah. yeah well i suppose where we uh, see culture and the arts as a primary space and a primary tool for opening up safe spaces and to co-collaborate as we talked about earlier with well-being organizations and community organizations at a very localized level as well as a Structural level, and what do you have any um, sense from your own world um, about the role that culture and the arts could potentially play, or does play, that you've you, that you've seen through your own practice? Um, I,
1: th- I suppose through our own work, we've seen a lot of the initiatives that have been established for children, um, and they seem to be. You know, highly successful and really fantastic. I mean, there are quite a lot of different um, examples of of arts projects and of history, local history, and local um, disaster preparedness style projects that involve the arts, um, storytelling, um, videos, making videos, and you know, different um, cultural kind of styles, performance, etc. Um, so, I think there's a lot. Of great examples again, and that are and also that are well documented. There are there are of course many on your own website. There are some uh, on the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience website as well. And there was extra funding again nationally for schools for this kind of initiative. So, I, yeah, I think I think the arts, you know, it's quite everyone, uh, you know, I think does recognise the importance of, of the role of the arts in bringing people together and helping people therapeutically with a really traumatic situation. Um, so I suppose we'll, I mean, we'll really just be emphasising that in the framework, providing some examples, um, and there will be a special background document on children and young people
0: great and um, in your in your process what has been the engagement around First Nations knowledge we know certainly from a cultural perspective the value and the importance of leading with the kind of knowledge that they have around response and recovery and survival has what's been the process of looking at um, that lens on this framework um, we've with- We've engaged a lot
1: through NATO, uh, the National Association of Community Health Organizations, Aboriginal Community Health Organizations. And we have a representative um, from Gippsland and East Gippsland Aboriginal Cooperative on our expert advisory group. We also have a representative of the National Indigenous Agency uh, in on our steering committee. So we've 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 got some input there. And, um, again, we will be, of course, talking about their role, uh, specific issues for Aboriginal mm. people quite, you know, quite prominently. Mm, I think in, that
0: became friend. very large part of our conversation in this 20, uh, 2020 c- c- fire season, became a very strong part of that national dialogue. Yeah. Particularly I mean, means. the
1: thing that has come through to us, apart from the, the fire issues and, um, you know, Cultural burning and different different responses and, and preparation that is needed in Australia is also just um, the specificity of services that people, many Indigenous people, don't necessarily feel comfortable going to all of the mainstream services that are often funded. Um, it's far more effective to fund services that are local and that people trust and have confidence in. Mm. So that's another really strong thing.
0: And so where after the framework has been released, what's the next for you? Do you know where you head from here? Um, No,
1: I don't exactly know, but I've got quite a few other things uh, that I do as well. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm looking forward to having – probably a bit of less mm, frenetic, frenetic time um, but I'm sure there will be some follow-up work from the framework mm-hmm. as well because we'll be wanting to talk about the framework and communicate, you know, its it's key lessons and so So important on. is
0: it because it's all so, very well to have a document on a shelf but how do you make it live is the next true challenge, absolutely. isn't it? Yeah. Well thanks Caroline for joining us today. It's always a fascinating conversation and yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing what the framework presents for us and how we can kind of connect in and work more effectively with our colleagues in this work. Great. Thank you. And
1: I'm hoping I'll be able to discuss the framework with you again and get your feedback before it becomes the final version. We just always, as always, you know, it's all very rushed, but um, your, your input and your ideas have been really useful so far. So thank you as well, Scotia.
0: Fantastic. All right. All the best with this last Last dash to the finish line. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. And many thanks to Caroline for making the time to speak with me about this important work. The Natural Disaster Mental Health and Wellbeing Framework will be released in June 2021. We'll include links in the show notes if you'd like more information, and we look forward to hearing more about the framework as details are released, and we'll continue to share updates on our social media channels. Creative Responders In Conversation is produced by me, Skoshamogovic, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany Demack, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. A special thanks to Jess O'Callaghan and the team at Audiocraft. We'll be back next month with another conversation. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.